Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Six Minute Mile Podcast. Our guest today is Dave McGilvery, a fellow Bostonian and fellow runner, although his running resume is slightly more impressive than mine. Dave is the race director of the Boston Marathon. He has run across the entire United States in one summer. He's completed more than 150 marathons and several Ironman triathlons. He has written books on running, including one called The Last Pick, which talks about how he was bullied on the playground for being the shortest kid in his class, but used those slights to fuel a remarkable career. That's the part of the story that fascinates me the most. How can someone use debilitating childhood insults to run his age in miles every year on his birthday, or graduate as valedictorian from both high school and college, or recover from triple bypass surgery to run his beloved Boston Marathon only a few months later. Dave has cleared every hurdle ever placed in his lane, but we caught him at a time of great uncertainty for his race production business, where he's had to furlough employees for the first time ever and pray for return to in-person races. He hints that even next April's Boston Marathon is in jeopardy due to the pandemic. Dave is a classic Irish storyteller who has lots of stories to tell. We can only cover so many during our hour-long visit, but there's some good ones. Enjoy. Hey, well, thank you so much for making time for us. We, we, um, we, we should be able to keep this to about an hour, although we, we've got about 10 hours of questions for you, but- um, <laughs> Let it you know, I'm good. We, we can't thank you. Where, where are you right now? I'm home in North Andover, Mass. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. You, you mostly, Dimsy, mostly been working remotely your whole crew? Well, therein lies the conundrum, the whole crew, given that at the beginning of the year in March, we were looking at our best year ever. We had 35 events lock and loaded uh, all over the country. And then, you know, this thing came and every single event was canceled. And so we haven't had, we haven't produced an event since last Thanksgiving. And uh, it doesn't look like we're going to do anything any, anytime soon. Um, I mean, I don't even, well, I know, but it's not public yet. But, you know, Boston in April doesn't look too promising. Um, so I'm, I'm not seeing anything until, you know, on a, on a good curve, you know, the summertime, you know, July, August, something. So that's a long time without events. So I had to lay off five of our 10 people. So we're just pivoting and trying to, trying to do things that to keep a pulse right now. And the virtual, the Virtual stuff's not enough to make up for the for the real not, thirty-one live not, events. Right? Well, the, the problem with with my situation is that I, you know, the way my business is structured is I don't own any events I manage. I used to own all of them because I created them all in the early years before there were events, and then I got to the point where I said, you know, I don't really want to own events. I want to manage them, so I changed the whole structure of my business which worked well for 30 years, but then this pandemic comes along and things change, you know? So since the client owns the event and I'm the one who puts out the road cones, well, if you don't need the road cones anymore, you don't need us. So even though there are virtuals all over the place, I'm not involved in 
no pun intended, virtually any of them. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So the only virtuals that we could be involved in, you know, in a, in a significant way would be ones that we just created from nothing. And it's tough to, it's tough, you know, most virtuals that are successful, not all, but most, have been tied into an iconic event like Boston or Falmouth or whatever. But if you're not tied into anything and you're just creating it out of nothing, it's tough to tough to get significant numbers for something like that. No, look, we had the same thought. We were trying to get creative with our business. We said, well, you know, listen, we understand the race business and we've, uh, you know, we know how to reach runners and that sort of thing. And then we talked to one of the race registration companies and they said, uh, by the way, guys, you, you, we'll help you with this, but 80% of these virtual races do not succeed. Um, yeah. and, it's, and of the 20% that do make a little bit of money or, or be successful for the runners, it's, as you say, it's almost all the big iconic events. Yeah. 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 I mean, you look at Thalmouth, so we typically get 13,000 registrants. Um, when we opened registration for the virtual for Thalmouth, um, that the idea was how do we how do we get how do we create a sense of urgency, and we just said the first five thousand who register will get an automatic uh, guarantee slot. You have to pay for it, but slot into yeah. next year's race. Well, we got five thousand people in the first hour, right? I believe it. And ended up with ended up with ten thousand. You know, at fifty dollars a whack. I mean, that's half a million dollars without putting on an event, right? So the event made a lot of money, yeah. right? And I just hope they don't say, well, we'll just keep doing this virtual thing. <laughs> you know, we can make a lot of money without even putting out one cone. You know? Right, right. Well, what, uh, what you... hopefully, I don't think it works that way, but we'll see. <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm, I'm always an optimist, but I, but I feel, my personal view, feel free to disagree, is that I think, I think the race uh, business will come back stronger than ever next year because there's so much pent-up demand um i guess you could argue that hey people have found uh, success with the virtual thing so maybe it doesn't come back but i don't know how do you look at it um well i think there's demand i just don't think that we're going to be in a position to um accommodate the demand until next uh, summer maybe yeah well it's you know everyone at least where i live it's it's phase four which is a vaccine forget that jack i mean you know even if they even if i had the vaccine in this tube right here you know what it's going to take months and uh, months and months to mass produce it then months and months to mass distribute it and then months and months to get a sense for whether it's working right and it, if there is immunity and and, and what about the people who don't take the vaccine? And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so, you know, it, I, yeah, 200, 300, 400, 500 person races, it's doable. But 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 30, and that's what I do. I do 5, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 person races. I don't do two, 300 person races. So it doesn't work for me, at uh, least currently the way I'm structured. So I don't. I don't see races of, of the magnitude of 10, 20,000 coming back any day soon. I can't put a, a timeline on it, but it's, I'm not planning on it oh, in, understood. in the next year, you know. And, and you've always been great about 
giving back to the community. And I've, I've seen you speak at Run USA and Road Race Management in the past, and you, you, you're always really articulate about how this is, uh, you know, there's no graduate program to become a race director, right? This is the mm. only way you learn more is through your community. And, and man, this is one of the hardest hit industries in the entire country or the world, right? And not a lot of people think about event management, but, uh, you know, restaurants have it better than uh, road race managers, right? So um, yeah. what, what do you, you, uh, you know, are you beyond crying on each other's shoulders? Are you, is there much that you can do within the community of race directors right now? You know, I'm, I've been, I've been pretty much an optimistic person all my life and turning negatives into a positive and making lemonade out of lemons and all that kind of stuff. Right. But this one, I don't, you know, what we do flies right in the face of the pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, our job is to get as many people as possible, jam them all together into a small space. They're breathing all over each other. They're sweating all over each other, right? And, and they're right in each other's face. And now we're being told you can't do that, right? So I've always felt that in its very simplistic form, what we do is all driven by two things, time and space. How much time do you have to conduct the event? And how much space do you have within which to conduct it? And one impacts the other. The less time you have, the more space you need. The less space you have, the more time you need. And in some cases, you don't have either and you're hosed. In other cases, you have both and you can have 50,000 people, right? So in this whole social distancing thing is, is a game changer because it basically means you've got to distance people from one another, whether it be on busing, transportation from the finish to the start, like in Boston, or lining them up, or in an athlete's village, or whatever it might be. And if you don't have the space to do that, then you need to draw it out over more time. But the authorities might say, no, we need you on and off the road in six hours, because we got to open things back up for the residents. And, and and so for us, for a lot of my races, it's going to end up being that the thing that we need to determine before we can flick a switch to open registration is how many. What's the field size? You can't open registration if you don't know how many you can accommodate, right? Right. You don't know how many you can accommodate until somebody develops the protocols. What's allowed and what isn't allowed and who determines that? Is it the government? It, the politicians is because it, it's political and it's science. There's two things here, the science of everything and the politics of everything. And you're being pushed and shoved in different directions. And, you know, even the science, who do you believe? I, I've been on calls with epidemiologists and CDC people left and right over the last six months. And, you know, one saying one thing and another one saying another. And like, what it, well, who's right? Who's wrong? I don't know. Right. And then ultimately, who decides? right? And who decides is the person who writes the permit, right? And then, but then you got your own medical staff and they have certain thoughts on all of it. And you have your own organization and then you're dealing with sponsors and what their take is and liability and all the volunteers and are they, is there the fair factor there? And will the runners even come even if we have the event because of fair fact, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So, so many moving parts. It's tough to figure this thing out. Well, and so this reminds me, uh, so you've been through a lot of 
tough situations in your life, right? You've run 150 marathons, you've run 3,500 miles across the country. Um, you've, you've had uh, health issues, which I, I, I want to dive into, but, but in, and I consider myself an optimist, you're an optimist, but when you're right in the middle of a tough, crappy situation, when we're being really honest, we're not, even the most optimistic of the people we know are not always optimistic in the middle of that moment, right? And I don't know, does it feel that way to you now? I mean, we will come out of this, right? But, but well, how, how do you deal with that mental challenge of when you're in the middle of it, you're like, man, I think I'm going to make it to Fenway Park after 3,500 miles, but you're yeah. not 100% sure, right? Well, I, I'm looking at this more as a, you know, sort of like we're on hold. We're, yeah. we're just on hold. Um, now the question becomes, how long can you hold on? Like that's why restaurants, so many are going out of business is that they can only hang, hang on for so long. The PPP ran out and then the cash flow stops and then rainy day funds are gone and they still going to pay rent and this, that, and the other thing. They can't afford it. They're gone. So with me, it's the same thing. I have rent for office space, warehouse space. I have overhead with staff. I have overhead with everything that comes with that. And you have to sort of, because there's no cash flow, you got to start chipping away at the expense side of things to the point where you might end up saying, I'm done. Now, even if you are done, you have to close shop, can you come back again? And therein lies the question, like I laid off five people. If we were to come back in six months, can I get those people back? Are they gone? Right. I won't know for six months. I, I don't know, you know, whether you furloughed them or laid them off. Or it doesn't matter. Are they going to be available? And the problem, like you were just saying, Dave, is that, you know, you just don't bake these people in the oven and like pop them out. You know, these, these people are on the job training. I, I feel like I have some of the best event management people in the business Absolutely. because they've been doing it for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so you learn on the job and they're the best at stock coordination or course coordination or finish coordination or lead vehicle coordination or medical. medical or, yeah. And they've done so many, I've done 1300 events. And so I've got the best in the business. Now they're gone. Now I got to recruit new blood. I got to start all over again. Now, now is my company considered one of the best in the business when I have all new blood? It shouldn't be because no, I don't have what I used to have. So can I come back once this thing settles? Yes. Will it be the same? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. That's the whole thing is that when it does come back, it's going to be very different. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, well, back me up a minute from that. So what, yeah. you know, uh, when you look at your list of accomplishments and uh, you read the Damon Gilbert Wikipedia page, uh, it's it's a pretty silly list. It's like, you know, a couple of running buddies got together with a few beers and, and wrote down a fake list of accomplishments, right? So, <laughs> but when you, when you look back to your career and your personal life, what, what do you, um, what sticks out? Of, what, are you, what are you most proud of over the last uh, 40 years? Well, I think it's the whole idea of, um, you know, finding a different path sometimes to, to a goal if you stymied. I mean, for me, I, I just always, growing up in Boston with, you know, the Celtics, the Bruins, the Red Sox, the Patriots, you know, it's just a very sports-minded town, and I always gravitated towards sports as a young kid, and 
and then I looked up to those guys who made the team in high school and I wanted to be like them and so that my goal was to be an athlete but because of my I, I was you know my short stature if you will I was always the last one picked when my friends pick sides and I was yeah, now I read one. the book man the book is great yeah always the last one cut and, and that was devastating because I, I learned you know about one type of pain in life that it's tough to train for and that that pain is called emotional pain you know like I can train physically to do almost anything and I think I can train my mind to do anything from mental you know strength emotional man you just can't train for that you know and so when you keep getting rejected you know it can it's like kryptonite you know so so that's when I started running because nobody can cut you from running and so I just said to myself that's my path I'm going to pivot. I was pivoting back then too. Yeah. I was pivoting towards something else to achieve my goal of being an athlete. And then I started setting personal goals, you know, of running my age on my birthday or running across America or running up the East Coast of America or wheelchair pioneer Bob Hall or, you know, doing a triathlon around New England 1,520 miles or doing a 24-hour swim in a pool or 24-hour bike ride nonstop or a 24-hour run or, you know, the list goes on and on and on of all these different crazy things. And I was just basically challenging myself um, to just, just, you know, step it up and try to, try to set realistic but challenging goals my whole life. And how much of that is driven, uh, as my buddies from South Medford would say it's like Italian Alzheimer's. You only remember your grudges, right? But uh, how much yeah. of that stuff? I mean, it sounds like you, you still think about that. You know, that some of these, you know, we, we grew up in an era that wasn't as uh, sensitive and politically correct and kids would make fun of you openly for whatever, your, your height or your ethnic background or you know, a speech yeah. impediment or whatever. And yeah, how much of that still drives you to this day? Oh, um, I mean, just setting goals or what well, happened just, in the past? Yeah, I'm just thinking that, you know, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. I, I, you know, I read in your book when you ran it to Fenway Park after running 3,500 miles, you sort of looked up in the stands and said, ah, I wonder if a couple of those punks used to make fun of me are up there now, right? Well, so. they, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know, it really is more about proving to myself that I have it than trying to prove them wrong. It's proving me right versus proving them wrong. And, you know, and that's why I continually set these goals because, um, you know, listen, I, I firmly believe our industry right now is mainly about one thing, and that is about raising the level of self-confidence and self-esteem self of people. That's what this industry is. Yeah, it's competitive, it's a sport, but it's also an activity. And, um, but truly the, the majority of people who are, who are out there running and participating in races are doing it for that one reason alone. And when, when I used to be asked what I did for a living, I used to mumble, <laughs> I'm a race director. You're what? I'm a race director. Couldn't get a job as a banker or yeah. Yeah. And right. you know, my brother's a social worker, my sister's a nurse, my other brother works for the blind and data race director. Like, what do you do? 
trot mark in the road, yell go. And I, I used to say, yeah, that's what I do. And now when people ask me what I do for a living, I say, I help raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. And that's what we do. That's what these events do. The walls of intimidation have crumbled. People are believing in themselves. You know, and I say to people all the time, you know what the toughest part about running a marathon is? Signing the application. It's having the guts to like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you got to do the work. You got to earn the right. And then you toe the line. You answer the gun. You run the course. You cross the finish line. You get a medal. And magic happens. You know, you go home feeling good about yourself. And there's nothing more powerful in this world than to feel good about yourself because it's the foundation by which we accomplish everything else in life. And that's why I look at what I do is giving people the opportunity, the chance to, to accomplish something so they can feel good about themselves, so they can be better at everything else in their life. And that's what these things do. Um, so I think it's an important mission. And that's why it's really frustrating to me because I don't really hear politically anyone talking about, oh, those poor road race management people are going out of business or losing business. It's almost like, really? That's not a real business. You, they're talking about restaurants and they're talking about other businesses and whatnot. And, and I get it. But at the same time, look what we do in our sport, the economic impact in the communities within which we conduct events. The philanthropy is off the charts. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars raised, right? The health and fitness benefits, the social benefits, the community goodwill. You know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on of how much good our industry does. And now we've been brought to our knees. And I don't see a whole lot of people advocating for us any day soon. I, whether there's coalitions here and there, which I'm part of and stuff, but it's not like Congress is going in there going, let's let's keep these people, let's keep a pulse going with these people. We need them. Right. So we're, we're kind of on our own. At the no, I'm with you. And, and, and you, know, you hit an interesting point that I, I've always wondered about that. There's some magic to the race itself, right? A race day itself. And it's, yeah, you, you put in months and months of training for a marathon, but you know, I, I, when, I, when I line up for a race, I, I'm nervous at the start line. I don't know why, right? I'm not going to win, but I, you know, I, yeah. I feel some nerve. I feel some butterflies. And so what, what do you, you've seen thousands of races and been involved and run thousands or hundreds of races at least yourself. What, where does that magic come from of 35,000 people lining up together? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, we're all on this thing together. And what's interesting about running is, that as you're out there participating, you might be feeling pain or a little suffering, but so is the person next to you on the left and the person next to you on the right and the person a little bit ahead of you. And even the fastest guy way down the road, even though he's doing it twice as fast as you, he's experiencing the same kind of feelings too. So at a different level, obviously. So it's interesting to, to be part of that. Um, that experience on a live event, you know, obviously on a virtual event, you don't, that's gone because you're, you're on your own. So, you know, I, 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 I we got to get back to this sooner than later. That's for sure. I agree. I agree. And, and look, I've always believed in kind of the, the healing power of sports and, and, you know, not, not to get too 
political here or anything, but I, I remember I read once where somebody said the, the most segregated hour of the American week is 10 a.m. on Sunday when everyone's going to their different churches, mm -hmm. right? And, and I, you know, I think the most, one of the most integrated hours yes. uh, Super of, Bowl. of American life is sports, <laughs> right? Super Bowl or, or 1 p.m. Yeah. on Sunday, right? With the NFL kickoff, right? So I, what's your experience? And yeah, we're going through, a, a, you know, obviously economically and the pandemic and health wise and, and you know, racial tension and overcoming a long history of issues there. But what, what's your experience on the power of sports to bring people together? Well, I think you made, you made the point just now. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, it has no boundaries in terms of, like you said, political affiliations or, or uh, any kind of affiliations other than just the fact that people want to get out there and, and participate in something healthy, participate in something good. Um, but I mean, as you, as you see right now, it's, it's so bizarre the way things are being structured where, you know, you have all the players in a, a park with 60,000 seats and no one's sitting in them. Um, it is pretty amazing to see how they can still perform at a fairly high level yeah. without a lot of people yelling and screaming. You know, somebody made a comment, one of the commentators on the, on uh, one of the football games this weekend saying that, you know, not having some fans yelling and screaming negative things at you is, is also helpful too, that, you don't have them in the, you know, you're on your own and you're not getting all that negativism. It isn't just all positive. There's negative too. So it can be, it can be different depending on where you are, you know, yeah, where you're playing. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you've, you've seen the healing power of the marathon, the Boston marathon over and over again. Yeah. I mean, the marathon in particular, I mean, you look at something like Boston and, you know, I'm so close to it. I've, I've run it now 48 times and I've been directing in 33 years and one would think that I take it for granted, but, you know, especially being a runner myself, I understand the importance of say Boston in particular to so many runners around the world. I mean, we just conducted our virtual and we had 18,000 people register and people from over a hundred countries and, it was pretty amazing to see the level of passion and enthusiasm, you know, people had, even though they were extremely disappointed when the announcement came about first of a postponement and then the cancellation. But I think that they finally said, well, this is all we have right now. So let's make the best of it. And they certainly did. And the emotions you see in some of the video clips from people all over the world that they sent in and, and how they, how they took advantage of, of um, you know, creating, you know, chalking the road or their driveway with the BAA logo or, you know, printing out the brake tape or printing out a banner or a finish line or a start line or whatever it might be. And just having their own personalness to it. You know, it's, it's one thing to run by a million spectators and you don't know any of them. <laughs> Right. It's another thing to be in your own neighborhood where you know everybody and they know you and they're cheering you on, just you, only you, no one else, because there's no one else out there. There's something unique and special about that. And that really, that really showed this past week um, 
So it, 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 I think it uncovered something that, that it's always been there, but it really shined this time around. And that's the, the uniqueness and the special um, sort of experience people have with, um, you know, running in a marathon and then having to have to do it by themselves. And w did you do a virtual Boston or, or will you? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> so, you know, for the last 48 years of my life, I've run 26.2 miles on Patriot's Day. So right. Patriot's Day came and I had nothing to do because we postponed the race. So I woke up and ran a marathon. Oh, I didn't know you did that. Good for you, man. Yeah, I did it on Patriot's Day. And then, and then when we come up with the rule that you have to do it between September, it was the 5th to September 14th, I said, well, I didn't do it. You know, I did it on Patriot's Day, which is when we normally do it. But the new rule is do it in September. So I went out on September 5th and did it again. You did it again? Yeah, I did it again. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's yeah. good. Yeah. I so thought we we're going to have to, to, to start a petition drive to make sure your, your streak stays intact. But you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're no, got to cover both days. <laughs> yeah. And what was your experience? Was it worth doing the virtual version? Well, you have to understand, I guess I'm kind of different than a lot of the runners in that I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of running, you know, and I've done a lot of 26.2 miles plus, 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 plus on one day in my life. You know, running across the country, I was doing two marathons a day for 80 days. So running up the East Coast, same thing, doing my birthday runs, all that kind of stuff. So I've probably run 26.2 miles um, over 300 times, yeah. you know, and most of those times they're by myself. So it isn't like this was new to me to go out and run 26 miles by myself. Um, I enjoy it. I mean, I love running with people, but I can get through it, you know, on my own. I, I get tricks of the trade, um, that work for me. Um, you know, when I run, a lot of people run with music, I, yeah. iPods or whatever. I run with a voice recorder and because I have my best thoughts when I run ah. and I'm, I'm the most creative when I run. And so all the books I've written, all the races I've directed, I've directed from the road because I come up with my best ideas and I record them as I run. So I'm in a, a whole different place. So I could go run 26 miles around the neighborhood and get home and you could say, where'd you go? I, I don't know. Because <laughs> I was so deep in thought and recording things and coming up with ideas and whatnot that, uh, that um, I don't even remember where I ran. So it's very different because a lot of times you'll be driving in your car and you come up with a thought and you get home and you go, oh, what was that? Right, right, right. Same thing with running, right? That's like, I got these five thoughts I come up with when I ran, and now what are they? I forget them all, right? Well, I haven't missed a thought in 35, 40 years of running because I always have my voice recorder with me. What, what were your best thoughts this year from the virtual marathon from September 7th? <clears throat> well, it's, it was more about um, where this is all heading and how I made have to pivot myself. So right now my company's even doing drive-in movies. You know, we're doing, we're renting our equipment to restaurants who are doing outside dining. Um, you know, I'm gonna write, I just finished writing my third children's book called Finish Strong. Um, I think I'm gonna write another book coming up. I mean, so 
I'm thinking about, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? You know, so that, um, you know, I, I can, I can fill the void of what exists right now. I've, you know, my whole life, I've never been without being busy 24 seven. And now I'm kind of finding myself like, Hmm, I've already done that. I've done this. I've done that. There's no events that direct what's next. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out what's next. Uh, another book. Yeah. Yeah. I think I might run, write a book about my Boston marathon experiences, both as a runner as a, and as a director. Yeah, that's great. Let's take a minute to acknowledge one of our sponsors, marathon photo capturing proud runners and creating happy customers for over 35 years. 8 million runners have trusted Marathon Photo to capture and deliver the best in race and endurance event photography. Whether your race is in person or virtual, we will be there to capture your glory. Visit www.marathonphoto.com to check out our photo archives and learn more about our virtual experiences. What does look like right now? What do you, what's a typical training day for you? Right well, now? you know, it, it has been impacted by my heart illness. Um, so we can talk about that if you want. I do, yeah. <laughs> um, so a few years ago, I was out running and I could feel some difficulty in my chest, breathing. And I said, what the heck is going on? And I dismissed it a little bit and then it persisted. And then I said, well, maybe it's the cold, maybe it's the hot, maybe it's what I ate, maybe it's what side of the bed I woke up, I don't know. Right. So and then I went to the hospital and. They did all kinds of tests, echocardiogram, stress tests, EKGs, and they all said the same thing. Man, there's nothing, we can't find anything, there's nothing wrong with you. I said, yes, there is. I can't breathe when I run. So there's something wrong here. And I said, you gotta give me the big boy tests. You know, you gotta look under the hood. <laughs> you gotta, you know, um, you got, you, we gotta find something here. So they gave me a CAT scan, then an angiogram, and. The doctor comes in and he goes, there, 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 there. I'm like, yeah, what? And he said, you have severe coronary artery disease. I went, well, you know. And then I said, well, I have a question to ask you. And he said, what? And I said, is this reversible? He said, well, it depends. I said, depends on what? He said, depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. <laughs> I'm right here. He says, you, with your discipline, I think you can have an impact on your own illness. I said, well, sign me up. So I just changed everything. You know, I changed my diet, nutrition, my sleep habits. I always thought sleep was overrated because I wanted to get the most out of every day. Stress, that was the year of the bombing and the whole bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, four months later, I lost 27 pounds, which I didn't have to lose, but I did anyways. I lowered my cholesterol level by over 100 points. And uh, I said to my doctor, I want to go back to Hawaii, do the Ironman again for the first time in 25 years. I had done it eight times in the 80s, and I wanted to use it as a magnet or a target to train to go after something. So he said, okay, let's, we have to do another angiogram. So we did, and I had reversed my own coronary artery disease by about 40%. So he allowed me to go back to Hawaii. I did the Ironman again and everything started gelling together and I felt better and I could breathe in 2014, 15, 16. And then all of a sudden I got asked if I was interested in doing that world marathon challenge, running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And I was like, 
yeah, it's right up my alley. Yeah. yeah. So I trained really hard for that. I was running over 100 miles a week back to that kind of thing I used to do when I was in my 20s and, and went and did it. Did seven marathons, seven days, seven continents. And that was 2018? That was 2018, January, February. And when I got back in March, I could feel that difficulty breathing again. I'm like, what the heck? I thought I beat this. And I went back in for another angiogram and the doctor said, you have 90% blockage in your main artery. And I said, well, how did that happen? He says, it's genetics. And I said, well, I guess you can't run away from your genetics. And right. what I learned is that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. And I always thought it did. You know, I think most people do feel that way. So I said to the heart surgeon at the time, well, in, you know, Boston was six months away. And I said, well, I said, there's this little jogathon in April <laughs> in Boston that I've shuffled through a few times. I said, uh, what do you think? And he gave me the best possible answer. He didn't say, no, I don't think you can. Or yes, I think you can. He said, I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. I like that. He gave me that four-letter word that we all need in our lives, and that was hope that I could overcome this and I could have the surgery and come back. So I said, all right, because initially I said, what are my options? He said, well, one, you could do nothing, and but you'd have to live a sedentary life. Oh, man. And I was like, cross that off. Yeah, yeah right. And then he said, we could stent it, but it's really close to your heart. I said, ah, I don't want to take any risks like that. He said, oh, we can do open heart triple bypass surgery. I said, nah, I don't like that one either. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, you run out of options. <laughs> I said, oh. So because I could run Boston and all that, or think I could, I said, let's go for it. So I had open heart triple bypass surgery in October of uh, 2018. And now, what do you think about when you were when you were getting wheeled in? I mean, I know I had this is a terrible comparison. I had knee uh, surgery no. a couple of years ago. And I'm like, ah, it feels okay. Maybe I shouldn't go through this knee surgery. And then yeah, and it's spooky, I, right? I, yeah, I just I just wanted to be wheeled out, you know, <laughs> alive. You know, you don't know, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because people kept saying to me, "Oh, this is routine for them." I said, "Yeah, routine for them, yeah. not routine for me." You know, I've never done this before, folks. I mean, so, yeah, I, was, I mean, there's definitely some apprehension and, and whatnot. But, you know, once you make a decision, you can't look back and you just got to think positive and say, this is going to work. They're going to fix me. Yeah. I want it to be fixed, right? Because I wanted to get back to competitive running. So did you get a little bit, a little bit spiritual? Not overly spiritual, but, yeah. but yeah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, but so no atheists and foxholes, right? Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> but then, you know, I had that delicate balance of, of being smart about recovery and not doing too much. But at the same time, I've got a marathon to run. Yeah. And so I got to do enough to be able to get through 26-2. So it's that delicate balance for six months of how do I do this? And there's no real books out there. You gotta just do it as you feel. And I know my body pretty well. I haven't beat it up so much over the years. And 
I've got myself in good enough shape and I was able to do it and, and finish my 47th Boston. And it was the most you know, rewarding, satisfying marathon of my life, even though it was the slowest, but that I was able to run a marathon six months after open heart surgery. How, how slow was, is slow? That's probably it was like it was uh, like five twenty or something. Like that. That's legit, man. You did it. Yeah. So then, um, then I get all jacked up about you know getting myself back into really good shape and and you know in terms of um, you know running Boston and you know this year and the whole nine yards and then this all happened. Sure. So so. Now I'm just, I'm just waiting it out. There's nothing to compete in. I'm out there running. I'm just doing maintenance stuff. There's not, no reason to really work real hard, you know, do 20 mile runs or do a lot of speed work or anything right now. Yeah. I still want a body that I still got a little healing left to do, even though, you know, I'm, I can breathe normally now. Um, I might have to go in for, I, I, I feel, I, so I still have these wires that are holding my sternum together, or oh, did man. hold the sternum together. Now my sternum is healed, and normally they leave the wires in, but mine are bothering me because, I think mainly because when you're really fit and you don't have a lot of body fat, you can feel them. And so I just went and got checked up, had another CAT scan a week and a half ago, and uh, the doctor says, well, you know, we can take the wires out. And I said, well, what's that entail? Yeah. So they have to cut you open again and, you know, pull it out with pliers and sew you back up again. So I may elect to do it because there's nothing else going on right now. And if there was an opportune time to do it, now is that time. So I'm just kind of hanging on, you know, I'll probably have this done in another month and then recover from that. And then I, I hope I'll be back in business. But that's not as bad a procedure. That's no, not a crack. That, crack could, be, that could be day surgery in a sense. I mean, that could be in and out of there on the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so what you're coming out of that, you, you got to really uh, dealt the crummy set of cards. It sounds like genetically, right? You, yeah. you pretty much did everything right. I mean, probably, I mean, I know, I know all of us at some point think, Hey, if the, if the furnace is hot enough, it'll burn anything. So you, you probably wish you had a few do overs on maybe diet from 20 or 30 years ago, but, but I don't know. What do you get? How do you give advice to other people who may not have the same, you know, bad draw genetically, but you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses and. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, here in Massachusetts, there's a public safety campaign and it goes, if you see something, say something. My new campaign is if you feel something, say something. You have to advocate for yourself. You know that the most important person in the world is you because you, you're no good in trying to help someone else if you need help. So you first have to take care of yourself and most people don't do that, right? And I had seven friends of mine who were Olympic trial caliber, you know, 220, 218, 220 marathoners, and they went out for a run one day and never come home. Man. And whether they were in denial, whether it just snuck up, I mean, it doesn't take much, boom, 
That's the problem with heart illness. Unlike a lot of other illnesses, heart illness, it's a matter of seconds, seconds. If you're alone and you go down, you're done. Yeah. And I said, I don't want that to happen to me. You know, I, I want to be given a, a second chance, which I have been because, but because I knew my body so well, I knew something was wrong. And I went in there and I said, we got to fix this. And so the, 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 the sort of, sort of takeaway from all of this is that, you know, sometimes as athletes and especially endurance athletes, we, we have this tendency of thinking that we're Superman, you know, we're, we're invincible and nothing can be further from the truth. You, you no matter how fit you are, doesn't mean you're healthy. Um, yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, I broke the rules <laughs> back then. Yeah, I, we all did. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you go out for a 20 mile run, you come home and you have a half a pint of ice cream. Why? Because you earned it. It's your reward. Absolutely. You know, but over 50 years of that kind of mentality, it, it can add up that combined with genetics, you know, could have, could have meant the end. So, you know, I, I, there's only, I can't change my genetics, but I was able to change how I, treated myself and I made those changes and you know that they, they've worked for me obviously no okay <laughs> yeah quick quick similar story your, your, your life's a lot more interesting than mine but uh but I had I mean probably eight or ten years ago I woke I fell asleep on the on the couch watching a football game or something wake up like one in the morning on the couch and I feel this strange twinge in my lungs I'm like that, that feels kind of strange never felt that before um, and I, I went on WebMD and Googled it, and I had nine out of the 10 signs for a pulmonary embolism. I had a blood clot start in my leg, spread in my lungs, and I woke my wife up and said, hey, I'm, I'm driving to the hospital right now. She's like, what, are you crazy? I said, no, no, I'll, I'll be fine. So I drove myself to the emergency room, and they said, man, you, this, you got a 28% chance of dying if you hadn't come in. And they said, why'd you come in? And I said, well, I went on WebMD. And they said, no, 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 don't ever do that. That's the worst thing you can do. Don't go. I'm like, well, it saved my life. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't <laughs> gone on WebMD. So I'm with you, man. You got you to you gotta look out for yourself. And, and you know, your doctor, as wonderful as he or she can be, they don't know your body the way you do. And, and mm -hmm. I felt, it just something felt a little funky. And, and you know, 20% chance I wouldn't be here if I hadn't gone in. So Yeah, and I went through... You know, it's interesting when this stuff happens, you go through these five stages, as you know, the first stage is denial, right? Nah, this isn't, can't be me, I'm not, nah. And then, and then it's anger. You yeah. get mad, yeah. you know, at anything and everyone. You know, you see someone out running, you're mad at that person. Why can they run and I can't right now? I'm I've never felt that. Into, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. And then you get into this whole negotiating, bargaining side where it's like, okay, well, maybe this and maybe that or how about this? And you just start playing around with it like, like it's not real. And then you get, you know, you get like depressed, full of self-pity, like why me and all that. And then comes acceptance. You know, once you get to that acceptance stage, that's a good stage to finally arrive at because then all that angst is over, the anger is over, the depression is over. Now it's like, I gotta do something about this. I've accepted it, 
and now I have to do something about it. And, you know, I went through all those stages myself. Um, they, they went pretty quick because, you know, I just, I felt like, okay, he said, they said, this is the problem. I, 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 I feel like I, I, I caused it somewhat. In fact, you know, even when I first was diagnosed, I was so angry with myself because I felt like a big chunk of it was self-inflicted. And, and then I started punishing myself for it. In other words, what I mean by punishing is I started, not only did I take away some of the bad things that I was eating or whatever, but I, I just, you know, I just said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to have a beer. I, I didn't have a, a beer for seven years. I didn't have red meat. I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of ice cream, cookies, nothing. Everything was gone. And my doctor said, well, you can have a glass of wine every now and then. Nope. I'm not putting, nope. You know, I don't deserve it. I did this to myself. And, you know, I mean, where to get me? I still have the surgery. So, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, and what about, um, you know, not the life-threatening stuff of, uh, of injuries and health, but I mean, you must have had every running injury known to mankind over the years, but how do you, what's your personal philosophy for getting, getting through injuries? And yeah, well, I can give you some examples, right? So um, my, my approach to injuries is, first of all, it's like my approach to life and my approach to race directing. I don't try to put out fires. I try to prevent them. So it's all more preventive than it is reactive, right? But that being said, if there is an injury brewing, I don't just try to mask it or deal with the injury. I try to think about the cause. Mm. Every injury has a cause, right? So when I was running across the country, I was in Ely, Nevada, in the desert. It was a thousand miles in. I had 2,500 more miles to run. And 15 miles into my run that day of 45 miles, my left knee went on me. I was like, I, not only could I not run, I couldn't walk. Wow. This thing was killing me, right? I was like, what the heck happened, right? So the guys who were with me, my support crew, threw me in the motorhome. We drove 40 miles to a um, hospital, when in the emergency room, the doctor looked at me and he goes, hmm, what do you think caused it? I said, well, I don't know, I was out jogging. And I mean, if I told him I was running 50 miles a day, hey doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. Yeah, right. Did. Well, he's just gonna tell me, stop it. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's not what I wanted to hear. So I just, he said, well, here's some anti-inflammatories or whatever. And I knew it was a muscle, it was my vastus medialis muscle, but it was still preventing me from running. So I said, I gotta figure this out. So I got back in the motorhome. I said, guys, bring me back out to where we left off. I gotta finish up the day. I gotta get the, I gotta get the next 25 miles in. So I did that and I started thinking about what caused this. And I said, I, I know I'm running a lot, but I, I'm, I'm more fit then this, this should not happen right now. It shouldn't happen. And I said, I'm not going to accept it's happening because of just solely because of the miles I'm running. I'm not accepting that. And then I figured it out that I was running on one side of the road the whole time. And the road, especially in the desert, is really pitched. 
And so, you know, one leg is doing more work than the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to run on one side of the road facing traffic because I want to know what's about to hit me versus sure. it coming up from behind me. But I said, I'm not going to make it if I keep doing this. So I alternated each side of the road. And I was able to, um, you know, in two days, that pain went away. It never came back again. I solved my own problem because I treated the cause, not the problem itself. Yeah, love it. So it's all, it's about being smart about the approach. Same thing with people said, how do you run, how'd you run 50 miles every single day? And I said, well, I ran 10 miles, went in the motorhome and I changed my shoes to what? I said, just something different. And I went out and ran another 10 miles, went back in the motorhome, changed my shoes again. And then went out, ran, you know, did, the, did that five times a day. And I said, by alternating the shoes and the shoes have different durometers, different heel heights, if, and then they accentuate different muscle groups. You're not just doing the same thing over and over and over again. I said, putting on a new pair of shoes or a different pair of shoes is like a fresh start. It's like I hadn't run the 20 miles before then, you know, and I was able to, so that's how I did it. So it's the same approach with, with like injuries. Yeah, I've had, you know, vast medialis problems i've had plantar fasciitis i've had you know this that the other thing but nothing debilitating i mean you know it's i think about my history of running started in the 70s and 80s when i was running with the bill rogers of the world and all the boston track club and all these kind and we were running a buck 20 buck 30 buck 40 miles a week and you know because then more was was you know, they say now less is more, but then more was more. Yeah, sure. and the more you ran, the, the faster you ran and the better you were a marathoner. So we, we just ran and ran and ran. Double, triple workouts, everything, right? And now my friends who I was competitive back then, I'd say what seems like 90% of them have artificial hips, artificial knees, blah, 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 blah. And I don't know why, but I think one of the things that saved me is that in the mid eighties, I switched to triathlon yeah. and it wasn't just run, 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 run. So by doing triathlon, I, I cut back on the number of miles I was running, but added miles on the bike and in the swim. And it, you know, obviously it, it, it kind of spread it out a little bit. And I think that saved me in the eighties and nineties doing triathlon. And now yeah. I, I still do some triathlons, but I'm mainly running right now, but no problems with the knees, the hips, the, what, anything like that. Lastly, I think it's a lot of it has to do with the footwear. You know, your gait cycle biomechanically, it's all hinges. It's all like, you know, how, how you hit the road, um, you know, so choosing the right shoes, what's, in, what works for you is, is probably the most important thing. I mean, it's, everything stems from the feet up, right? So if you have a hip problem, it's because of your feet. You have a knee problem, it's because of your feet. You know, how you hit the road. So you got to analyze that and then come up with solutions to prevent things from not being balanced. So. What are your go-to shoes right now? Right now, they're the Hoka's. I was yeah. going to say, I love those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was weird because years gone by when I was racing, racing, you know, the thinner, the yeah. outer sole and the lighter and the whole bit. Now it's like the heavier and the list, you know, I, I need support more than anything because I run like a helicopter now, whereas <laughs> before it was more like a gazelle. And so it's a whole different gait cycle right now than it used to be, which means a different model, different type of shoe. 
yeah. you know so when i did uh the 777 i did i used hoka and um i mean i i was banging out marathons one day after the next and hardly feeling anything oh good for you yeah and you, you have to hide those on race day on patriots day you have to hide them right yeah <laughs> no comment <laughs> um one thing i've always wondered about uh is uh with, with everything you've done it seems like is if you've not done that much uh trail running or uh you know lead bill or hard rock 100 or those sort of things is that never captured your imagination right it hasn't um I, you know, I, I guess I'm an asphalt guy, um, you know, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I mean, my problem now, it's very different than before, but now is I don't lift my legs too high. So I, I kick pebbles. So if I'm in the trails, I'm probably down on my butt more than I am on my feet because I'm tripping over everything, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So for me, I just... I'm used to the roads. I like the roads. A lot of people rather run the trails and, and, but for me, I'd like to be, I like, I like just to see life go by me. I mean, I understand the solitude of being in the trails, being in the woods and you know, you're on your own and all that kind of stuff. But I also like life and activity and, and seeing, like I said, seeing people and whatnot. So I'm good where I am. I mean, to each his own. Yeah, so all all those uh, age groupers over sixty are probably glad that you're not doing doing these ultras in the woods. No, like, no what's don't. funny is for all the miles I've run about one hundred fifty thousand miles, and I've never raced an ultra. I'm twenty four right? hour runs and running fifty miles a day, running my age on my birthday and all that stuff. But I've never competed in anything further than twenty six point two. All right, we're gonna send we're gonna send this tape to about a uh, hundred race directors now. That yeah. they're, they're gonna offer to pocket Yeah, I gotta. I I suppose I have to do one before I check out. So all right, man. There's, there's our headline. Hey, we'll wrap up a couple very quick questions for you. We we've done this with a couple other guests. It's kind of fun, but um, so real quick, uh, favorite movie of all time? Uh, Ben Hur. Oh, that's a good one. Favorite book? You're not allowed to say one of your own. I was going to say my own. <laughs> um, way back when, the book that resonated the most with me was Tale of Two Cities when I was in high school. And yeah. I'll always remember it for a lot of different reasons, but that's always Love it. it. A good classic. Uh, you can have dinner with one sports hero, living or, living or dead. Who would it be? Um, that's a good question. Uh, well, my, my sports hero is, is Johnny Kelly, who's run Boston 61 times. And, you know, I, I did have dinner with him, but it's more of the concept of not only being a superb athlete, you know, in their competitive years, but carrying it on throughout the rest of your life. That's what I admire most about certain athletes who don't just be competitive for 10, 15 years, and then, and then all of a sudden they're out and they get overweight or they lose it or whatever. I love the fact that it's a lifestyle for certain people. And, and someone like him is someone who I admired throughout his entire career. And I like to emulate and think that I can do what he did at his older age. 
All right, here, here, here's one follow-up task for you. I have a little downtime and no races. When, when are we going to get the city of Newton to move the Johnny Kelly statue around the corner so people on the course, see, you know, I, I've talked to more people who run Boston and said, I hear there's a Johnny Kelly statue before you head into the hills. You yeah, know, it. it's funny. I, I was there when they put it, put it in. And, um, you know, I was a little sad that it had to be hidden like that. And, you know, you have to, you're running and you're running and you have to kind of turn and look. Yeah, like give them Wave, right. Yeah, and try to do the wave, but good point. And it's not even at the base of Half Ray Hill either. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so, all right, so we'll work on that. It, could, it is what it is. It's where they could put it. I don't know why they couldn't have put it closer to the road and all that kind of stuff. But I think I, certainly people who live around here know where it is, but it's just people who are traveling from around the world when they run the race. You're not not going to see it. You know that way brings me up, brings up a good point. We should put up a huge sign right on the course that says Johnny Kelly statue. And well, I don't want people to take a left on Wellness Street, but but no, you know, point it, point, point it out so that people can at least Whoa. have a chance of seeing it. Tip of the cap. Point. Yeah. All right, we'll do that. Uh, <laughs> last question: If you ruled the world, would, 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 you, do you wish the iPhone? It, do you wish the iPhone had never been invented or do you think it, you think it's a great convenience or is it, you know, ruining America? Well, uh, you know, it's like any technology, it gives you the opportunity to do a, a lot more. I mean, that's the way I look at it. It's like chip technology with our, our, our races and stuff instead of, you know, and, and online registration, stuff like that. I mean, we can never do what we're doing today at the level we're doing it, 30,000 people without, the technology. So I, I love my iPhone. Um, you know, I, I suppose I'm a slave to it. Like most people, I got to learn to kind of back off a little bit, but it, it's amazing what that one little device can do. That's, that's good. We, uh, yeah, we, we interviewed uh, Lynn Rathjen, who's a great guy, who was the 75 year old who just ran a 559 mile. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he wants to get rid of them. He's, I know. He, I get he it. thinks it's ruining the grandchildren children's brains but you know the pros and cons pros and cons it's like everything in life it's all about moderation you know everything's good and everything's bad it's just how much of it yeah. great note to wrap on wrap up right on. hey we can't thank you enough this is great uh really fun and we'll um we'll send you links when, when this goes live cool. in a couple of days all right hey thank, Dave, you guys. thank you so much best wishes